listening to KYRS Medical Lake Spokane at 88.1 and 92.3 FM. And this is Art Hour with your host Mike Malsom and Eric Woodard. As you may know, since the Stay Home, Stay Healthy emergency order for the state of Washington, Art Hour has solicited stories via audio files from some of Spokane's talented community of artists to hear their personal stories of their experiences of sharing their art for the first time in public and on what obstacles they have had to overcome to create their art. This week's show will have a variety of very talented artists to share their story of what their proudest moment or moments were of their creative life. I would also like to add that this will be episode number 47 of our Art Hour radio show. You can listen to this as well as any of the prior episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Anchor, Overcast, and many other streaming platforms. Just search for Art Hour. There are many stories in the past episodes that you will find very interesting, and it is a great way to pass some time in your stay-home environment and learn about many of our local and talented Spokane artists. So enjoy this week's stories on what were the proudest moment or moments of their creative life. All right, this is Vanna O coming at you from my mom's house. Uh, The question that we are going over is what has been the proudest moment or moments of your artistic life? And I'm just recording this on my Mac, so sorry if it's the sound quality sucks. Hopefully it's good enough for air. Um, Actually, I was thinking about this sort of, uh, before I got the invitation to be part of the show. So thanks guys for inviting me to be part of the show. But with, um, the coronavirus shut down, I lost all of my gigs, um, for the foreseeable future. And just a little bit of backstory on that is I basically was living off of a pretty meager savings for the last six months, planning on a April May tour to be like the only time I make income, like basically for the last. It would have been like eight months by then, um, and so now that's canceled, and um, I'm just kind of trying to, you know, I'm asking myself a lot of big questions, and um, and one of them is, is all of this worth it? And was it worth it? And even if, even if I have to, you know, qu- quit being a musician because there's just no way to make a living, um, am I glad I did it? And and the answer is yes. Um, and the biggest thing that I think that I've gotten from this process is this process, meaning being a musician, um, is learning to to trust myself and learning that I can pretty much do anything. And that's true. I think for anybody, um, learning the guitar was such a huge thing for me. It was really hard. It still is really hard. Guitar does, does not come easy to me. It's not something that, um, that I love and just like, it's not something that I live and breathe. It's, it, it's a hard, it's hard work for me. And, um, so putting in probably about four or five years of real di- diligent practice at this thing that didn't come easily for me and then mastering it to a certain level, like probably I'm, I, I would say that I'm at an like intermediate place of mastery. Um, there's, it's just, it blew me away. It's just kind of like, as long as you put the time into something, you will succeed. And I I believe that's true for anyone. I don't really believe in talent. I believe in, in time put in, um, and the ability for humans to learn just about anything. Um, and so that was, that was, um, that's part of it. And then the other part is, that I'm really proud that I have started to trust myself. I'm proud that I have gotten to a place where I'm not afraid anymore. When I first started playing music, um, I started playing open mics. Um, well, when I first started playing music in front of people, my original music in front of people was about six years ago. 
um, when I started playing open mics. And I was so scared when I first started playing open mics that I drove 30 minutes away to a nearby town to play my first open mic because I was terrified that somebody would see me and um, see me mess up. And I would be so embarrassed. So that is something that, like, I don't, I'm not afraid of that anymore. I'm not afraid to mess up in front of people. And it took me doing it over and over and over again. Um, I had a goal when I first started playing open mics. I was like, okay, I'm going to fall on my face a hundred times until I'm not afraid of falling on my face anymore. And I feel like I've arrived and I'm not afraid to fall on my face anymore. And I'm really grateful for that. Thank you, Mike and Eric, for asking me to be part of your show this week. Um, my name is Darren Huff. I build custom guitars and basses. Been doing it for a little over 20 years now. Started in high school wood shop and just been doing it off and on ever since. Uh, question that you uh, asked uh, this week. Proudest moments or moments in your artistic life? And I think I have three of them for you. Um, First one is the one that made me feel like I had arrived as a builder. I admired a, a custom base builder by the name of Carl Thompson, and uh, he builds very, very beautiful instruments and to me was like the pinnacle of uh, your skill set. So I built one, a replica of his, and I solely built it to proved to myself that I could build guitars and I could build basses with no intentions of selling it, just more of a, a test piece. And uh, I, once I decided to go into building full time, I was looking for ways to raise money. So I put that instrument up for sale on eBay years ago, probably 15 plus years ago now. And it sold. It sold to a guy back east in the Philadelphia area, and uh, he loved it. Loved it for a few years, and then he decided to sell it. And when he sold it, he sold it for more than he paid for it. Which, as an artist, is always a good sign when your art goes on to appreciate. Well, I've since heard a few times that. Uh, it's sold a couple more times, and each time it has sold for more money. So that's always a reassuring sign that your work is at the quality level that it should be. And then a few years ago, I did get a call from a gentleman in New York City who actually ran across that base at Carl Thompson's shop. It was there for some reason. I guess the person that currently owns it had it there to have Carl do some work on it or set up. I don't know the, the details on it. Um, but this guy that called me from New York City was at Carl's shop to order a custom instrument from, from Carl. But he happened to play my instrument that I had made that was sitting at Carl's shop and uh, was blown away and actually loved it more than the instruments of Carl's that he was testing out. So he, he got a hold of me trying to uh, have me build him one in the in that style, uh, that vein of Carl's, which I no longer take orders for. And so I thought that was pretty, pretty awesome, pretty great that uh, a person admired my work and was at the the maker's shop that inspired me and loved the quality of the the workmanship that workmanship that I did that uh, he wanted to order one of mine over one of Carl's. So to me, that was when I felt like I had arrived as a maker, as a guitar builder. And uh, yeah, that was that was a pretty, pretty proud moment of myself. Uh, second time that I, I was pretty proud was uh, about six, seven years ago now, I think it was, maybe even longer. Uh, I had made a bass for Gabe Nelson, 
Gabe Nelson, who is the uh, bass player for the band Cake. And he had used it on their last recording, and uh, he wanted me to build him a second instrument. And he, he reached out to me one day to see if I had any laying around because they were getting ready to go on to the Letterman show and he wanted to use something a little bit different than the one I made for him that they used on the album. And I did not, I did not have an instrument uh, laying around that he wanted, but he gave me eight days to come up with an instrument to make it for the Letterman show. And, and I did it. I, uh, worked long, long hours for uh, six days. And then once the instrument was completed, I wasn't sure that I was going to have time to overnight it down to Sacramento. So I got in the car and drove it to Sacramento the next day because he was flying out uh, two days later to get onto the Letterman show. And I just wanted to make sure that all that time that I spent was... Uh, for a positive reason and that the instrument arrived in time for him to, to use it on the show. Uh, that, that show that they did was during a time when, uh, Letterman show was also doing, uh, one hour, uh, web concerts with certain bands where they were calling it live on Letterman. So not only did he use it for the, taping of the the Letterman show he also used it for the whole hour of the live on Letterman and uh pretty rewarding sitting on your couch and watching the Letterman show and seeing an instrument you had made uh being used and that was definitely a highlight of my life and I mean he used it for the Letterman show and then he ended up using it on the uh Tonight Show with uh, Jay Leno and also used it on the Conan O'Brien show as well as, you know, touring across the world with it and using it on their last album, which Showroom of Compassion debuted at number one. So having one of your instruments used on a number one selling album is always a, a proud moment. But ultimately, I think the proudest moment I have is the last couple of years I've been doing a uh, Guitars Against Cancer um, Facebook page where um, I've done two now where I've raffled off guitars, raising money for people either fighting cancer or for the family of someone who recently has passed from cancer. And uh, just having my work raise money and help out families and uh, giving them a little bit of financial relief while they're going through these battles and struggles and losses of a loved one is really the proudest, proudest moment of my life. It uh, It's rewarding having my art raise money for others and, uh, and yeah, just connecting with the community and, and bringing everyone together to help each other out by far has to be my private, not private, proudest moments of the, uh, of what I've been doing with my art. And, uh, I'm going to continue to keep doing that and, uh, looking for other ways that my art can help our local community. Hi, my name's Melissa Cole, and I'm a visual artist. I work in acrylic and mixed media on canvas and wood, and then I also do large public works of art um, using concrete, glass mosaic, and often um, participation of community members. Um, one of my proudest moments in my artistic life was in 2012 when I was chosen um, to create artwork for the Fifth Street Pedestrian Bridge in Lewiston. For one, it was super scary and intimidating. It was a 200-foot-long bridge, actually, crossing um, a freeway with sometimes 45-mile-an-hour winds. And um, I didn't really know what I was getting into at the time, but I was excited to get such a large, um, prominent public work of art 
it was exciting to go so far out of my comfort zone and to work with engineers and a large community that I hadn't worked with um, in a region that didn't really believe in the power of public art. During their fall art walk, I engaged um, the community to participate and they built small mosaic pieces which I later incorporated into the full design piece. The design was called Confluence of the Snake and Clearwater Rivers um, because it had both the rivers coming together in that area. And it featured a hundred foot long um, blue rattlesnake on one side of the bridge and then a 10 foot tall um, leaping sockeye salmon, actually three of them, along the other. It took about four months to build in my little garage studio and I had to rent a storage unit to store half the pieces in and I just shuffled them back and forth while I worked on it. It took um, six days to install and it was in the middle of winter, um, it was even snowing, because that's how it was in my contract. But it all came together, and um, even one of the naysayers said, I just love walking on the bridge. You made it into a magical place. And it was just really fun to see uh, the community come together and be excited about it and have a little piece of it. And um, it was in 2012, and it's still standing and still fun for me to walk along there and see that work of art. <clears throat> Um, a second proud moment was recently, and it was at the show um, titled Broken that I had at the Colva Sullivan Gallery. Um, a lot of my work is about nature and my backgrounds in zoology, marine ecology, and I like to create um, things for my love of nature. This one was quite a bit different because a year ago I suffered a spinal injury while I was diving in Indonesia and went through a lot of um, semi-paralysis and numbness in my legs and not knowing what was going on. Um, met lots of expensive MRIs and nerve conduction studies and um, <clears throat> they felt like I had somehow um, blocked off the blood to my spinal cord and damaged a bunch of nerve bundles. But anyway, I didn't really tell people about it when I came back. I just kind of went through it for a year. And I knew I had this show coming up, so I went through um, my medical issues um, through paint. And it was really fun for people to see how personal the work was. I really felt like I stretched my normal subject matter and boundaries and materials. Um, I did a lot of sculpture in it and worked with encaustics and um, people really um, were drawn to it. I sold probably three quarters of the show, which is really exciting. And um, it, it really spoke to people about what we go through as an adults and how as adults and how our bodies really change and um, what's in your mind isn't necessarily what your body will do anymore. So I felt um, very excited to be able to try something new and to have people receive it so well. You're listening to KYRS Medical Lake Spokane 88.1 and 92.3 FM. Art Hour receives support from South Perry Pizza, featuring rotating local artists and serving hand-tossed artisan pizza, beer, and wine at 1011 South Perry Street and online at SouthPerryPizzaSpokane.com. Hang out with me, Jukebox Jenny, on Sundays from 6 to 8 p.m. to hear America's very own music, The Blues. Let me help you shake the trouble out with a mix of funk, R&B, and blues from Delta to Chicago. You'll hear... Don't forget to shake your rump, too. I'm living for the weekend. It's a cocktail that will soothe the soul. Working Woman's Blues, Sunday nights, 6 to 8 p.m., right here on KYRS. Hi, this is Kate Lebo. And this is Sam Ligon. We're married. And we're sheltering in place. Not doing anything. In Olympia. Waiting to come home to Spokane. 
What else is happening? Um, we're talking about our... Proudest moments? As writers, as artists, etc. And I, of course, immediately thought of the year that I won the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award, and the James Beard Award. Yeah, and you said you were humbled to win those prizes. What did you mean by that? I only said that online. Um, okay. In my private life, I was not humbled at all. I really felt like I deserved them. And so, and I, right, because I remember that same year that I didn't win any of those w- awards. And I also felt humbled. And I wondered... What do you have to be humble about? Well, what I'm wondering is, is it more humbling to win the prize? Is it? Look, let me ask you this. Let's say it like this. If you won the National Book Award, let's say, uh-huh. you would have to say immediately how humbled you are, right? Uh, is, there, is that a law? Kind of. But, so let me ask you this. If you won the National Book Award, you would say you were humbled. What if you were uh, a finalist for the National Book Award? I wouldn't tell anyone. I would be ashamed. Do you think it would be more humbling to win the National Book Award or to not to be nominated for the National Book Award or to not even be nominated for the National Book Award or to write a book that doesn't win the National Book Award, doesn't get nominated, and it doesn't even get published, but what which it, is the most humbling of all those or what things. About, what about that? Somebody actually did write a book called Winner of the National Book Award. Who was that? I don't remember their name, but they must have been very humble. Okay, so we, what we're saying is that it's not true when people say they're humbled. I'm not that. saying that. What do you do? Well, I think, but I, I think I am saying that the way that people deal with their um, pride, okay, it's just uh, say they're humble. Excitement, yeah. Um, in a out in an outward sign of success, um, requ- requires right now particular vocabulary when we do it on social media or in public, um, and it's probably different than how we feel privately about it. How do we feel privately? I mean, probably very proud. And excited. If you won that award, wouldn't you just feel super proud? And you'd feel a little bit less proud if you were only a finalist. You'd be a little bit humbled. Right. Right? If you were a finalist. (laughs) You got close. Okay, you got close. as close as anyone's ever going to get. What I'm trying to say is that I've never been nominated for a National Book Award. I'm going to tell you right now that it's humbling. Mm -hmm. I feel humbled by that. (laughs) Right? You know what I mean? So, I wouldn't know how that feels. Right. I can't empathize. Because you've won. Sorry. Because you've won. Yeah. Now, so we're saying that saying you're humbled is the very definition of a humble brag. No. Right? I think I think it is. Why? I think that's a newish term that comes the from the internets. And I think we talk about this humbling on the internet, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And we talk about the humbling on the internet because part of the way... When uh, we communicate our successes is a display of those successes. And some of that we do in hopes of being celebrated by yeah. our peers, colleagues, family, who like just complete strangers we're friends with. We want people to love us a little bit more because we won. Yeah, because it feels right? good. Because it feels good. Yeah. But I'll tell you something. I was, um, I got an email one morning at about seven in the morning. Yeah. And it was from, I can't remember who the publisher was. But it was the people who do the O. Henry Awards. Uh-huh. And they let me know. That I'd won a No Henry Award. Well, and that's a big deal. It was a big deal, but you know Why what? Why haven't I ever? Heard but of wait that? a minute! But wait a minute! I didn't win the O Henry oh. Award, <laughs> and so what they were actually telling me was that that my that my story was up at the O Henry Award, but I didn't win. I got an honorable mention. Oh. So for like 15 minutes, I emailed a bunch of people. Oh, shit. And I was telling them that I, I had won, and including the editor yeah. of the magazine yeah. who had, who, where it had appeared, which was Alaska Quarterly. I was like, I won an O. Henry Award. Oh, I, I mean, I couldn't like talk to my mom. It was literally seven in the morning. And I was like, I was so excited. And then I went, I got further into the website. I was like, I didn't win this award. And I'm going to tell you right now, it was humbling. <laughs> Not to win that award, you know what I mean? Because I thought I, I was yeah. good, the bit, it was, like, and it was still really great. Are of we course, also talking about a kind of embarrassment. I was yes, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed. Wondering? I was embarrassed. Yes. I was embarrassed because I thought I had won, and and I told and people to reach out. yes, yeah, and I was really excited that I had won, yeah, but then I didn't win. Oh. Yeah, I've never really gotten Does over that. That make you feel kind of like a loser. Uh, I kind of did a little bit, to tell you the truth. How did you recover? I don't think I really have. Ever? That's what I'm trying to say. Oh, my God. Right? That's what I'm trying to say. So you're telling me I'm married to a loser? Right. You've been called the greatest living writer of all time. Only by my husband. Right. And how does that make you feel? Uh, Pretty proud. Yeah. Slightly delusional. Yeah. You know, but you need that if you're going to be an artist. Right. A little bit of delusion. 
Yeah, well, we, yeah. Every day. Right, we do need a delusion. Yeah. Kind of a but, fantasy that someone's going to care. Yeah. That someone's going to think we're great. Yeah. And, and you really, really, really take the time to read the piece right. that we put on Facebook and not just right. like it. Yeah. But we don't really do that, do we? Sometimes I do it. Sometimes we read other people's things on social media. And, yeah. But sometimes, a lot of times we like them anyway, yeah. whether we read them or not. Because we want to support. Because we want to support them. And I'm excited. Somebody got good news. Yeah. Or I'm jealous and I just don't yeah. want anyone to know. Mm-hmm. Do you think... Writers are the most horrible kind of artists in that way in terms of like being jealous and envious, just horrible and tiny and, you know, just like biting their fingers and, and, and hatred and envy. What, worse than politicians? Uh, I was thinking worse than painters or worse than dancers or uh-huh. worse than actors. Like, are we the most spiteful, hateful of all artists? And the most humble? Well, the, really the least humble, I guess, humble. is maybe what I'm suggesting. Okay. Are, like, are we in that way where, you know, you always see writers kind of look at each other sideways or, you know, like, why did she get it? Why right. did she get that prize? What about me? Right. Are we the worst in that regard or are all artists equally horrible in this way? I'm, I'm going to spread the blame evenly. Are we, do you think dancers are? Sure. Really? That's got to be competitive, right? People right. are going out for, lots of people going for the same part. Right. What Just ab- like, you know. What about painters? Hmm. I don't know about painters. What about opera singers? I don't know any opera singers. Okay. So will we agree that we can, we're a little bit horrible. Yeah. We're as horrible as no, any. No, we're totally horrible. Okay. And what is it about us? Funny. But how do you define this, this horribleness? What do we do exactly that? Our particular horribleness? No, I mean, just in general, this sort of pathetic greed for attention and love and recognition and. Well, maybe like part of the delusion that allows you to, um, take the time to believe and take the time and space to believe that you should be using your time and space to write, um, involves maybe, uh, uh, egomania. Yeah. A little bit of egomania. And the flip side of that egomania is going to be deep, deep insecurity. Right. Right. So we're both, we have inflated egos and we're also pathetically insecure. But I also think that that pathetic insecurity, um, can also be kind of a way of, paying attention or a way of being curious or a way of, of reaching. Like I often find when I'm feeling my most pathetic, um, I'm also like kind of looking for the thing that the thing that I can grasp to uh, pull myself out of it for the day. And what is, is that often another piece of writing? It's another piece of writing. Yeah, that's how I feel too. Yeah. What is that Emily Kendall Fry line that you like so much that from that poem? You are not a success. Yeah. You like that line a lot when you're feeling like a failure a yes. little bit. Yes. I like how that poem doubles down on failure rather than trying to um, kind of coddle the ego. No, that's not the word I want to use. Kind of rather than trying to um, boast or make beautiful or bigger that very, very small feeling. Uh, it's just like, yeah, you are small. Right. It's fine. And it's okay to live with that. And that's like you the, should live with that. And the Beckett line, ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Yeah. Try again, fail again, fail better. Yes. Yeah. I think that is a good embrace to say, hey, and Faulkner talks about how you're always going to fail at this. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. We're going to fail. That's okay. Mm-hmm. But now I really want to, I do want to know when it, I think sometimes it's hard when you're younger and when you're coming up as an artist to say, to name yourself as an artist because we don't we're afraid that we might seem sure. like dilettantes and I think we're looking for other people to name us as artists right and I think that's also normal right I mean and I said that like it was a question um, right because I guess that was my experience I don't know if it's other people's experience but I certainly was looking for someone or some institution to tell me that I was an artist right and when did you feel like you could refer to yourself that way if somebody said hey you know what are you or what do you do I knew I was a writer before I thought I was an artist. Okay. So there's some some shades within writing, I think, that allow that. But let's just say, what, even with that, like I wouldn't have said I was a writer. I was afraid of saying that for a while. Why? Um, because I didn't think I, ha- I had earned the right to that yet. Mm. I had a few publications, but I didn't know. Like, I wasn't going to say I was a writer yet, mm-hmm. even though I thought I was. Mm-hmm. Did you, how did you feel about that? Um, I felt early on that if I didn't commit to writing, I wouldn't be able to do it. Right. Because the the path forward was so unclear and so unlikely. 
Um, so I just doubled down on that commitment, I guess, and started calling myself a writer probably when I was 20. So you were still an undergrad yeah. when you did that. Did you go to college? Uh-huh. Okay. And what? I went to Western Washington University. Um, do you understand that writing can't be taught? <laughs> yes. But apparently painting can. Painting can be taught? And music can. You can teach dance, someone how to see. Dance can. Okay. Teach, no, you can teach writing craft. But we're told, right? we're told that we can't. I do think there's elements of what we do that can't be taught, or at least I have no idea how to teach them. Because it's a mystery. It's a mystery. Would you say that we're working on mysteries without any clues? (laughs) I'd say I'm working on a locked room mystery. Okay. What does that mean? That means, uh, what does that mean? No, that's a bad joke. (laughs) I don't know what that means. Um, I, where were we? We're talking about, well, we're talking about the mysteries of what we do, how hard it is to name some of what we do. Well, I think some of it is when I, when I start trying to name what I do, and also when I hear other people trying to name it, I think I'm an asshole. Yeah, it's and I embarrassing. Think that person's an asshole yeah. and a liar. Yeah. And, it's, and some kind of, um, what am I trying to say? Uh, 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 snake oil salesman. Mm. Or sometimes it's really obvious, too, or just idiotic. Well. Like, there's nothing more idiotic than the language that surrounds paintings in art museums. Oh, I disagree. I think well, I but this that. is yeah. but this is where I would be right. Mm. This is an example of me try being, again. me being right. Just try again. Correct. No. Okay. Let me ask you this: When you with your first publication, do you remember that first publication? Do you remember that rush of that excitement? That was amazing. Yeah. And yeah. So what did that feel like? That felt amazing. That felt real. Yeah. yeah. That felt special. That's what I thought too. I felt like I got picked out of a crowd. Yeah. Because you had. Because you knew. Because even then, you knew how incredibly hard it was. Yeah. And does it, does it still feel like that? Mm, but I think what was also part of that um, was the first experience of being like, wait, what did they see? Why was this picked? Mm. What did I do right? Kind of not ever knowing exactly if the piece you like actually works. And do you to this day feel that way? Often. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm often surprised when uh, something I love just is never picked up. Me too. Something I think is fine is me too i'm told it works like, me too okay, i don't really know what it did there but yeah okay. or stuff that i think is really funny it turns out actually isn't at all funny <laughs> and stuff that i um don't think is really that funny or didn't intend to be funny people think it's funny yeah which is really funny yeah does that make you think you don't really have a sense of humor it makes me feel a little bit okay. yes okay um but i also remember the excitement of those that first publication i remember thinking um oh now that i have this publication surely more publications will follow just rapidly. And really, actually, anything I write now, there might be bidding wars for the things that I write. (laughs) And that did not happen. Uh And not only did it not happen, I couldn't publish another thing for about three years. Uh Though I tried. I was trying and trying, and they really weren't any good. Uh So... That, that, I feel like that's happened to me repeatedly, where I feel like, oh, now I'm, now I'm getting it. And it's right when I start feeling that way that then I'm like, no, not so much. What you thought was working is not going to or it's work. Just, I just can't tell. Yeah. Or there, and there isn't just a, a, because this worked, the next thing will work. Or because this door opened, that door will open. I remember, actually, no, I, you know something I was really proud of? was um, an essay of mine was chosen for Best American Essays. Yeah. That seemed like I won the lottery. That's humbling. I could not be- it was very humbling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It was awesome. Yeah. Um, and then I tried to use that essay um, to gain access through applications to different residencies, to grants, and everybody shut me down. They hated you. Yeah. I lost every single one of those Do you think they hated you because you won that award? Yeah, probably. A they little bit? Yeah, it's, because I, it's because I wasn't humble enough. Maybe, maybe. maybe that is what it is. Yeah. I don't think it really is. No, who knows what it is? Right. You know? What about, you know, so you remember way back when you had that first piece published, but then and then many, many more pieces have been published. Is it still exciting when you get that email or that letter or that phone call that the piece has been taken? Yes. I think the most, the two most exciting days are when you're sending a piece off to your editor or when you get that email that a piece has been taken. Yeah. And then when it's actually published, it's yeah. a, just always kind of anticlimactic. Is it kind of disappointing? Always. I know. I feel that <laughs> way too. And that's kind of embarrassing also. Why? 
I don't know, because why why do we feel that way? Well, I guess because it's like, so now it's it's arrived, and so what? Is that why, or what is it? Well, I mean, the, or is it that the, the traffic does... maniac inside me, right. I think, is, is always very hungry and desperate for that piece now that it's out in the world to see evidence that it is loved. It needs to be celebrated. It needs to be it's celebrated. It's not enough that it's come out. It needs to be celebrated, and that's why... Really, a pushcart price isn't right. Quite, not not enough. That's not gonna be good enough. Not quite enough. Short of going viral, it needs to go enough. viral. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that does feel good. If, I mean, not that that's ever happened. It's never happened to me. But I mean, and it's interesting that we're talking about viral work at this time when we're stuck at home because of a virus. Because it's an actual virus. Right. Yeah. So. Okay. So. It's kind of humbling. It is humbling. I still, I still am excited when work gets taken. Mm-hmm. I, and I agree also that when it comes out, it is anticlimactic. But what about when you get the object itself, the magazine or the book, and you hold it in your hands for the first time, even if it's just a proof? Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I like that too. That is really cool. And that's especially with books. That's cool. I know, but even but even really good magazines that you're yeah. excited to be in, you're holding it. Yeah. And maybe you're alongside writers you admire. Yeah, that is cool. I remember um, when I had a piece in the Georgia Review, it was a big deal because oh, Faulkner was published here. So to me, that was, that felt like some kind of giant, even though you know he's been dead for five hundred years or whatever. Uh-huh. It felt still felt good, yeah. and holding it felt good. Yeah. I feel like that's a private thing. Mm-hmm. Do you? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now the the times I think when I actually feel proud and when I can feel connected to that feeling and not kind of foolish about it or humble right about fake it humble. is when it, the moment of privately being excited and holding it holding it and it does feel that way it's yeah. holding it you know to yourself and yeah like i did this and maybe smelling it a little bit <laughs> i mean you know the right. maybe licking it right just maybe yeah. immersing it in right. ever clear so it can never go bad right i mean i do and but then it can you know but then and then but then it is kind of dead yeah no you right. touch it's, it too much you just like take the magic out of it and it gets a little pathetic if you cling to it too and much. it's and now the work by this this time anyway the work is really it's old mm-hmm. right so the work is at least a year old if not two years old right. so it's it's basically completely dead to you right in a way unless you're promoting and that's another thing how about that moment when you're working on a piece and you've been working on it and working on it and you've left it alone long enough and then come back and you figure out that one word or that one sentence that makes it come together. Yes. I love that. Or, that, or the line. Yeah. Yeah. That's I love that feeling. too. And then other times it just doesn't happen. Nope. It's just a mess. It just doesn't. And sometimes I'll think something's good and then a few years later, I'm like, oh, that was never good. Yeah. That wasn't good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when did you feel like you had arrived? No. I think um, that that... Uh, a way of thinking about it feels um, dangerous right. to me. Yes. Because I think that thinking about art um, as a career that has a identifiable arrival point. Yeah. I don't know. Right. I, that doesn't feel like something that really happens. Right. And your job is simply to go to work every day to make your work, to, to make your art. And, and that's where the vocation is right. that's where the pleasure and is and I think we associate I know when someone says I have arrived usually right. it's associated with um, external reward and recognition yeah. for what you've done which is awesome that is a sign of a, you know like a public arrival great yeah. if that happens yeah. but like I'm um, terrified of, of valuing that to the extent that if that does not happen for me I won't value the thing that I do have control over and do feel most strongly about which is that vocation sense that private sense of right. just c- continuing to make art right and making good work mm-hmm. that which you realize later maybe right when do you think Britney Spears arrived she, uh, she arrived immediately she arrived immediately yeah that's she's she's a, a public creature okay that's true you know though something that did make me feel like I arrived I guess was um, the year that I started being able to pay myself as an artist and a small business person and a like gig person. So when I stopped going to my full-time job and didn't have to go back because I figured out how to live and do my art, that felt good. And what was that? What was that work that you were selling? Uh, that was uh, the cookbook. That, yeah. was, that was high school. Yeah. 
You know, and cookbooks are different from other kinds of books in that there's a market for them. But all books are, I mean, we never well, that's, know. That's, I didn't say that quite right. We never know what's going to happen with anything, with yeah. any books. True. Um, have you ever killed a man? Not on purpose. Have you ever killed a woman? Not on purpose. Animal? An animal? Never. Yeah. Okay. What about the cat yesterday with that beautiful bird? Oh, uh, but the cat didn't kill the bird. The okay. bird was already dead. The bird was dead. Yeah. Is that a metaphor of some kind? What? For the. <laughs> <laughs> like the cat is accepting an award it doesn't deserve. I don't know. Um, okay. Do you when, have any... Wait. No. When did you feel like you arrived? I don't think. I, I mean, I had the tremendous excitement with my first published story, and I thought I had that, and then I um, failed repeatedly after that, over and over and over, and realized that I hadn't arrived. And then I did with my first book, and then the same thing happened. It failed over and over again. So I feel like, um, so I've, now I know I never have arrived. Mm-hmm. And like, I think that's what you're saying partially maybe too. Like that the, um, it's not, I mean, I don't think we're going to arrive maybe. Yeah. yeah. What does Hemingway say about being a apprentice? Shoot the apprentice. Did he ever kill anybody? Hemingway? <laughs> I'm sure he I th- probably did. I think he might have killed Ezra Pound. You think so? I think he did. Why? You know, remember, I think he punched, him, I think he punched his head off. No. The, he did punch him. I know that. Uh, did Ezra Pound deserve it? I don't know. Do you think uh, Alice Monroe could beat Flannery O'Connor up if they were both the same age? I don't age? like these questions. Okay. I don't like these questions. Okay. Who, who do you see winning if there was like a Golden Gloves of writers? And you keep asking them. Right. <laughs> what about the poet Rumi? What about her? Is that, would that be someone or who... Or him. I actually, I don't know I don't, the gender of That's Rumi. what I'm saying too. Wow. So what about, so how do you do the boxing with that? Oh. You don't know. What I'm saying is, is it kind of like the golden gloves? The most important gloves? fights are the fights one has with oneself. Do you believe that the journey is the most important part or would you rather just get there? I'd rather get there. <laughs> right? I don't care. About, I mean, I'm interested in the journey, but I don't accept that the journey is the more important than the arrival. Okay. Do you? I guess my favorite part is leaving. You just like the departure. That's right. Yeah, just departure. departure. Yeah. Got to go. All the hope. Got to go. Latte right. from the drive-through coffee right. stand. Right. The road, your music. Would you say that's a kind of metaphor for death? This yeah. is what poets think about. Do, no, and I the moon. Think, and the moon. And cats. And cats. Okay. Is that good? Yeah. Right. It's been really, really nice talking to you during our quarantine together. <laughs> As always, love talking to you, Sam. Art Hour relies on support from listeners like you. Just $3 a month helps keep KYRS going strong, and you can help by texting Give KYRS to 44321. That's all one word Give KYRS to 44321. You're invited to cruise Americana Avenue with me, Jim Tate, in your car or at the office, each Tuesday from 2 to 4 p.m. You'll hear the best and progressive American Roots music in a multitude of styles. It's Americana Avenue on your radio station, KYRS. Hey, it's Jess Walter, and look, I'm finally on Art Hour. What's a guy got to do to get on this show? Now, it's so great to be here. Such a great question, um, series of questions, really. Uh, proud moments in your artistic life when you felt you've made the wrong decision, as if you'd arrived, as if all the sacrifice had been worth it. Reading that list of questions, I almost found all these different moments um, there. It's, uh, I think... I've been writing fiction and and uh, writing novels and been a writer my my whole adult life and um, I think I've given up on the idea that I would ever feel like I arrived. Uh, maybe those moments of repose. I think we're always climbing uphill, and so to pause and look back and take stock of what you've done and have moments of pride. To me, those are. Uh, really remarkable things Uh, and while you may never arrive um, hopefully at the pinnacle of your ambition and uh, as a writer as an artist you know you keep climbing and uh, and 
but I do think it's so important to take those moments and pause and look back. And I have all kinds of moments that I sort of build into my writing process. The end of every day, I sort of celebrate what I've done. And when I finish a draft, printing it out and feeling the heft of it. Uh, and I think the most, um, uh, the most regular way in which I I feel that sense of pride is when I finish a book and it arrives in the mail. I love um, taking it out of its package and reading my name on the side. It just connects with the daydream I once had as a first-generation blue-collar kid to have my name on a book. And there it is, Jess Walter, and I get to slide it in the W's on my bookshelf. I uh, make a bit of a uh, of a ceremony out of it every time. And I really encourage writers to do that, to really celebrate um, those small moments of success because they're the most reliable measure that you've accomplished something. Um, uh, outside of that, there is, a, I think, a different uh, kind of celebration that is less solitary too. And maybe it's this pandemic moment um, uh, or maybe it's having just finished a novel, but uh, I long to be out with other writers and artists again. And that's another favorite moment of mine, the very first reading of a book that I get to do, usually at Auntie's Bookstore in here, here in Spokane, um, to get to share a book with um, uh, readers and friends and family. It's just, I don't know, I just find it uh, so fulfilling and uh, and I really try to stop and be present in those moments and look around at the faces um, and I try to do that whenever I read uh, makes you less nervous too but it also just uh, is a moment to pause and and think about what you've done um, but I think the moment I'm gonna pick uh, if I had to pick one moment when I felt like I had arrived maybe it was that word arrived and there's something in that that calls for um, external validation to uh, and especially in a place like Spokane which can feel sort of um, isolated artistically and I remember when my first books my first novels came out and I would have this uh, I used to have a sort of joke that I told that finishing a novel and waiting for it to come out was the calm before the calm uh, and so I think having my first novels not really make a huge dent in the world. Uh, my first couple, uh, the moment that really strikes me is when I felt like I'd arrived was when my third novel, Citizen Vince, came out. And I think uh, I felt that moment in a couple of ways. Number one, because again, rather than being a solitary artistic moment, um, of which I have a, a number of them, this was one that was shared and it was shared with my family, with my wife and my kids who've been such a big part of this journey. Uh, too, of me being a writer. Uh, and it was 2005, Citizen Vince had just come out, and I was driving the kids somewhere. They were in their car seats in the back, and Anne called and said, uh, what are you doing? I said, I'm driving the kids. And she said, pull over, I want to read something to you. And I thought, what's this about? So I pulled over to the side of the road, and she read me this incredible review that ran in the Washington Post, written by Maureen Corrigan, about Citizen Vince. Uh, and I'll just read a little bit of it. Imagine a moving and inspirational book about the right to vote in America. Then imagine, if you possibly can, that the book in question is neither a flag-festooned picture book nor a history of the civil rights movement, but rather a darkly comic crime novel. Nah, you can't imagine it, you just have to read it. Um, to have Anne read me that, uh, the lead to that review, um, it just gave me chills. And, uh, and then she kept reading. Um, maybe if Aaron Copeland had written the score for a film noir starring the Marx Brothers, there would be some prototype for Walter's fusion fiction, but he didn't and there isn't. And the best thing about Citizen Vince is that it isn't one of those antic for the sake of being offbeat literary efforts. Instead, this is a compelling novel whose motivating questions are deadly earnest. What are the responsibilities of citizenship? How real is the promise of a meritocracy? Uh, a, lot of, a lot of my novels begin in a writing journal where I write um, the ideas for characters and settings and I'm constantly carrying this journal around working over not just the material that will go in the book but the material that I use as a writer to motivate me uh, and I am never more audacious than in this writing journal. And I remember as I was writing Citizen Vince, um, 
daring to write about the great Gatsby and the idea of second acts and Vince Camden, this character moving to Spokane and having a second act. And I remember, you know, writing so clearly that, that this was my ambition. Um, and you're, and you're never more naked than when you're sharing your ambition as an artist. And, um, so for Anne to read this next part of the review to me, uh, is America the land of second acts or are we all as F. Scott Fitzgerald decided at the end of great Gatsby like boats against the current borne back ceaselessly into the past? Fitzgerald constructed a pretty good fictional situation in Gatsby upon which to hang that final verdict about American social mobility, but Walter arguably concocts an even better one. So if you can imagine having this uh, combination of daydream, seeing your name on a book, um, and audacity and, uh, and ambition to try to match something that one of your heroes has done in such a small way uh, and then to have to be pulled over on the side of the road with your wife's with your kids in the back of the car and your wife reading to you over a, a 2005 cell phone the um, uh, this incredible review it it still gives me chills the way it connects with um, uh, that part of ourselves that allows us to dream of creating something uh, that people will um, uh, react to and and hopefully love uh, and that moment for me was um, uh, so great that I and to, fa and to be able to share it with the people I loved uh, I all I could ask is that any artist or writer uh, has a moment where they feel that profoundly thankful um, uh, for, that the world uh, has seen what they've done good luck out there everyone I'll be thinking of you during this difficult time and um, uh, keep up the great art Mike for inviting me to contribute to Art Hour and it is especially significant timing because I've just finally completed my first book Think of Everything and pushed the go live button a handful of days ago. That's right it's on Amazon. Uh, when I was growing up my brother and I used to play this game that we called Think of Everything. He would say hey close your eyes think of everything and I would take 30 seconds or a minute and try to think of every single thing that happened to us. Every inside joke, every awkward moment, every odd situation, everything. I would run through the Rolodex of our shared life and try to account for all of it. Of course, this is an impossible thing to do, but I would try to outwit him and remember the story, the memory, the detail that was in his mind. And then he would tell me what it was and we would laugh and joke and talk about the strange thing he had recalled. It was embarrassing, it was entertaining, we loved it. My brother passed away many years ago and think of everything as my recollection of our shared life together. I have been writing for decades but nothing ever came of it. I spent way too long writing what I thought was this incredibly epic, moving, elaborate story and it never got done. In the middle of creating my masterpiece, I was dealing with addiction and depression and homelessness and an incredibly toxic relationship, just a lot of really challenging things. And as it turns out, alcoholism doesn't lead to much accomplishment. And as it turns out, I was writing the wrong story. This past summer, I shelved my epic tale, closed my eyes, and started writing memories of my time with my brother. He had spent the summer with me before he died. He was magnetic, tender, compassionate, pained, mean, misunderstood, elusive, but his lies were so loving, and for so many years his life was a complete mystery to me, and so many questions still don't have answers. He was an experience, and anyone who knew him knows exactly what I'm talking about. While I was thinking of everything with my brother, I went back to our beginning, and to the number one thing we shared growing up, our mother. Our mother was and is a strange force. She's an ominous, erratic, charming, and deeply wounded and unknown woman. Um, her whereabouts are a mystery to me. She knows that disappearing keeps her lure intact, but I, she's out there. I can feel her. Um, so think of everything as the story of my time with her as well and how she heavily impacted my life, even from a distance. 
It's odd that the two people who brought the most influence to my life aren't in it at all and haven't been for quite some time. I wrote the whole book in about five weeks. I feel proud that I had enough distance, time, and space to speak both about them and my history clearly. Um, I could touch my memories. They didn't hurt me, but I felt them, and I could come at them from unusual angles. Um, Bloodhounds, sunflowers, the Mississippi River, trains, mirrors, red velvet cake, um, signs from seagulls, uh, maybe my brother, maybe God. And I was able to discuss what it's like being on the other side of those periods of intensity where now I'm debating Costco purchases with my wife and arguing with my cat about how 3 a.m. is too early for breakfast. I feel proud that I captured something enough that now I'm able to let it go and move on. I'm proud of my ability to write and tell stories. Um, this art helped me stay, kept me company, kept me here. I hope you will consider checking out Think of Everything by M. Tinley on Amazon. Many thanks again to the hosts, Eric and Mike, for inviting me to contribute and share to Art Hour. Thank you. Hi, everybody at Art Hour and everybody listening. This is Sarah Waisman. I was on the last two episodes. Thanks again for having me back. This is so much fun to tell my stories and to have a structure during this quarantine has definitely been nice. <laughs> this and, and going to therapy once a week, or going to, uh, digitally doing digital therapy right now, uh, is... Uh, my structure, my weekly structure. Uh, so yeah, talking about the proudest moment in my artistic career. Okay, I thought about this a lot, and the thing I keep coming back to is this this moment in my life. Uh, I can't remember if it was two or three years ago because I'm bad at remembering dates and stuff, uh, timelines of things, but, uh, I tried <laughs> stand-up comedy for the first time two, maybe three years ago, and, uh, that was my proudest moment, and I'll tell you why. First of all, stand-up comedy is, is a very challenging endeavor just in itself. It's, it's a lot to stand up on stage for five to ten to, who knows, however many minutes you're allowed, and tell a story or, or, or say your opinion, at, make people laugh. And they're not trying to laugh. You go up on stage and the audience is looking at you like, make me laugh. Uh, there's nothing more intimidating uh, than that. So, uh, yeah, stand-up is, is really scary. Uh, but actually, you know, as soon as I did it... I, I realized it's not only scary, it's also really fun. Uh, so, yeah, just conquering that fear was my proudest moment. Uh, and I did it in a cool way. I took a class through this casting director who does this class. Her name is Leslie Wolf, and she's awesome. She's a friend of mine. Uh, now, after taking her class, <laughs> she's just the just the best uh, personality and person to be around. She's so positive and makes the whole experience of learning how to do stand up uh, so welcoming and fun and 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 just uh, yeah, a really goofy, uh, fun time to discover yourself and the other people in the class. Anyway, so I I took her class and. Um, we did a performance at the Hollywood Improv on the last week. We had a show, and uh, we had a packed house, like, I don't know, almost 200 people there or something. And, uh, yeah, and and my routine went really well. And there was a, uh, a scout guy there who's also a comic himself who watched our show, who was from the comedy store, and he picked uh a I can't remember. I think it was just a couple of us uh 
from from seeing that show to go over to the comedy store and perform there. Uh, so my next, my second performance was performing at the original room in the comedy store, which is like has a reputation for being the hardest hardest comedy room. Uh, it, I think in the world. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that was intimidating. So gosh, that, that, you know, that might be my proudest moment. Um, anyway, but the, it, it all revolves around doing stand-up comedy and that was really challenging for me, that art form in itself, because it's not just being an actor, which was uh, what I'm used to doing, which I, what I've been doing for years. Stand-up comedy is its own art form and it's, it's being yourself and being, uh, in, in my opinion, it's like it's being brutally honest and sharing those embarrassing things about yourself or, um, you know, you're just your goofiest, weirdest thoughts with the world. And, and hopefully they're important thoughts. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, I just had a blast doing it. And then I kept performing at the comedy store a few more times and just really loved it and I realized oh okay I not only conquered a fear but this is actually something that I want to continue doing and yeah and I guess um it's also special to me that I discovered this because when I was a young child I had a really hard time just saying my opinion and and I didn't really have much of a voice uh, vocally. Like, I did a lot of artwork. I did a lot of painting. But I didn't, like, speak up a lot as a kid. I was very, I was, I don't want to say shy. Because I don't think I was necessarily shy. But I was um, just very quiet. Because I didn't, I really didn't think as a kid that my opinion mattered. I don't know. Maybe that's a common problem. So I'm hoping I can speak to some people listening now. Uh, but yeah, stand-up, it gave me a voice. And not only did it give me a voice, it gave me confidence. Because through that voice, I learned that people actually want to hear what I have to say. And uh, I could make people laugh. And it was an extraordinary transformation. Uh, and this was over over years. And, and acting helped me transform, too, as well. But I stand up just like, ooh, really sped up that growth that I needed to, to go through as a, as a human. Our last guest today is Jessica Earl. She submitted a story for our obstacles show two weeks ago, and I inadvertently left her off the show. That was absolutely my mistake, and she has a very important story to tell, so I wanted to make sure that she made it onto this podcast. So here is Jessica Earl talking about the biggest obstacle she has had to face in her art. Hi, Eric. This is Jessica Earl. Just getting around to answering your questions. Um, hope you're doing great during this awful pandemic. Um, so the question you asked is, what is the biggest obstacle that I have um, faced in my artistic career? And this was actually a pretty difficult question for me to answer. Um, I've been incredibly lucky so far with um, with my career in the arts. Um, I was able to go to a really good MFA program and I've had some pretty amazing opportunities to show overseas um, as well as nationally. So it took me a minute to think about this and um, while thinking about it, I was obviously dealing with all the craziness that's going on with this pandemic that we're dealing with and um, I couldn't really think of any one obstacle until um, I started thinking about um, my mental health because it's been obviously affected by a lot of the stress and anxiety of what's been going on recently. And I realized that that's really been the biggest obstacle for me. Um, I have 
um, pretty bad clinical depression, um, and I've had it for years and years and years. Um, but it wasn't until recently, in the past couple of years, that I actually um, was able to get it treated. So, um, kind of what a depressive episode can look like for me is um, I can have a hard time leaving my house for days or weeks at a time. I um, become really fatigued and kind of just lose interest in doing anything. And um, that can be pretty inconvenient if I'm getting ready for a show or um, if I'm just trying to create new work um, and be creative. So I've done a few things to kind of um, set up my practice around that. Um, I have, um, I've become really invested in creating work on my iPad. Um, so I have a bunch of video and sound editing tools that I can use from there, which means um, that if I'm having a, a hard time leaving um, my bed, I can still create work. Um, and then um, I've also just learned to be really generous and kind with myself when it comes to um, deadlines like residency applications or show applications. And um, I've kind of just uh, had to kind of come to peace with the fact that I might not always get to apply to everything that I want to apply to and that um, on occasion I might have to cancel shows or back out of performances um, if I am having um, kind of a tough time with my mental health. Um, so it's definitely an obstacle, but it's also something that I think um, kind of has, um, it's definitely given me a wealth of material to deal with, which um, it's kind of a silver lining. Um, but yeah, that is probably the answer to that question. Um, thanks so much for doing this and good luck out there. And that's our show. Thanks again to all of the contributors who sent in their stories this week, and I look forward to hearing the contributors for next week. Thanks again for listening to Art Hour.